I'm going to invite Jeff up. We are traveling through the Bible this year, and today is the book of Jeremiah. So Jeff is going to read for us Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 through 10. And then if he feels like it, pray for us, and then I will uh, teach God's Word. I guess I can do that. All right. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to, for to all to whom I send to you, you shall go. And wherever or whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck you and to break you down, or to, bruc- to pluck you and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus, we just uh, praise you for just giving us your word, Lord. Um, thank you that you uh, speak to us as you did um, to Jeremiah um, when we need it, Lord. Thank you that you've uh, appointed um, John and Anthony um, just with gifts to um, to help preach your word, Lord. And um, we just praise you and uh, give you the glory for um, just initiating and speaking to us, Lord, uh, to coming to us and uh, uh, initiating that, Lord. Um, so, yeah, we just praise you. We thank you for uh, this today. We ask that um, you would just uh, bless the words that um, are spoken and, that, um, Lord, that they would be yours. Uh, we just praise you, and it's your name we pray. Amen. So like I said, we are continuing our journey through the entirety of Scripture this year. 66 books in 52 weeks. And we find ourselves now entering into the prophets. In the Old Testament, we have 15 books that are named after the prophets, making up three, one of the three major sections in the Old Testament. You have the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, the the writings, which is basically a collection of history and the poetry, and then you have the prophets. Twelve are considered minor just simply because of their length. They're shorter books, and three are major, and Jeremiah is one of those big dogs, Um, although I don't think he wore that clothing brand, Um, if you remember big dog clothing. If you can't run with the big dogs, stay on the porch. Um, There's a relic of the 90s that needs to stay there. Oh, leave it there. Okay. Wise words. When we approach these sections of scripture, the 15 prophets, I I don't know about you, but I will be the first to admit my own difficulty with them. Uh, Especially the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're they're long, um, they're dense. There's some of the most beautiful and striking sections of all scripture that, that can be found in the Bible indeed. Uh, But those oasises arrive after forests of thick poetry. Uh, You have to traverse through jungles of dense imagery. And most of that is unfamiliar to us all. And that's okay. I mean, I'm guessing today you weren't hoping for a deep dive on, you know, Moab and its judgment or, you know, the Ammonites and all that. So so for us, these, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years later, it's, it's difficult. 
And so I want to give a little bit of an intro of who the prophets are, what they do, and then we'll get into Jeremiah. And if you want the alliterated title, uh, and you could really do this for any of the prophetic books, it's the man, the message, and the mission, and I admit that's not necessarily original. So first, the prophets. These prophets are not guys with uh, crystal balls. Um, Aunt Chloe, there's another relic of the 90s, the, the you know, uh, Aunt Chloe. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Um, they aren't people with crystal balls. They aren't palm readers. There's a uniqueness to their call, their vocation in their office. And here's what it is. These men encounter the presence of God. They encounter the presence of God. Really and truly, as God is. And from that, they're commissioned to speak the truth of God to the people of God. Their role was to work in restoring relationship, partnership, and covenant that was broken. And it was not an easy task for any of them. This is why and in, in how in, we see them again and again and again killed. It was not a popular vocation in the day. Because here's what they did. Encountering the presence of God, speaking the truth of God, and it basically followed this formula again and again and again. First, there was accusation. The prophets come and they tell the truth of how the people of God had violated the law of God. How they had strayed from God's word, how they had strayed from God's way, how they had strayed from God's will. Second, they call God's people to repentance. That word just simply means change your mind, which leads to a change of life. Change your trajectory. Don't keep doing what you have been doing. And then the third thing they do is warn them of the consequences to come if repentance does not happen. If change does not happen within God's people stemming from their hearts and leading to their lives, there will be justice and judgment from God himself. And one can see that if your role is having an encounter with God and then you get to speak the truth of God to the people of God, and that truth is accusation, repentance, and consequence, and that job goes to a people who are nose deep in idolatry, it wouldn't always go well for these prophets. That's where you get Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel, saying the city that kills the prophets, that stones those who were sent to her. And it, my brother and I, you'll meet him next week uh, in, in Ezekiel. That's going to be, it's, it's going to be a fun time. Uh, I'm going to teach Ezekiel. He's going to share his story um, in, in Journey. But, but he and I often laugh because we're raised in the church and we often laugh and joke about how interesting it is that the prophets have such weird calls and roles and then do these very strange things. Mike Goheen didn't get into it with Isaiah, but Isaiah was naked for three years. Hosea was called to marry a harlot. Ezekiel cooked his food over dung. Jeremiah got a linen diaper, was called to wear it, then had to bury it, and then dig it up again. Like, you read through the prophets and you're like, this is weird. <laughs> and I always, and then one of the jokes with my brother is like, I'm so grateful that pastors today don't necessarily have the exact same call or vocation, or how weird that would be, you know? The pastor hanging out in the red light district, you're like, Hosea did it. You're like, nah, that's just, <laughs> that's not in the New Testament, bro. 
And the result for most of these prophets is that they're ignored. And I didn't do a deep dive, but it seems like the greatest revival happened with Jonah and the Ninevites who were pagans, which is something we'll get into at a different time. But we need these prophets to rouse us and remind us of who God is in our tendencies, our own tendencies towards idolatry. I think that we are often, I am often lulled to sleep by the world around me, by the idolatry of my own heart, that we allow the world to numb us and shrink our visions of God. And so my hope is today, as we look to his word, we would allow his word to do a a new and deep and profound reminding work in our hearts. I'm leaning heavily on Eugene Peterson today and Chris Wright, uh, both of which have written books on Jeremiah. Eugene Peterson says, we underestimate God and we overestimate evil. We don't see what God is doing and conclude that he is doing nothing. We see everything that evil is doing and think it is in control of everyone. And so this is where we need Jeremiah to enter the scene. It's funny because as I was looking at Jeremiah, I think primarily he's known for two things. Anybody want to, I gave this quiz to Anthony, he, kinda, he passed, but any, anybody know what Jeremiah is known for? Weeping prophet. Weeping prophet, exactly. And there's a verse for that. Jeremiah is, I think, known for two things. One, crying. That's a Jeremiah 13 verse 17, where it says, but if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Jeremiah is overcome with emotion at the state of God's people. And I think you wanted me to do a deep dive on whether or not he wrote Lamentations, and I'll just go with sure. Uh, It seems to fit the bill. But in this book, you see that, and he's gotten the label, the, the weeping prophet, that he is overcome again and again with emotion. So first crying, and the second that I'd say he's known for is what I would call coffee cup. Um, the most popular verse, I believe, in all of Jeremiah is found in chapter 29, verse 11. And this verse is found on many a coffee cup. It says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And those verses are great. They're comforting. We can take a lot from them. But what's often missed in the context, and there's limited room, I understand, on a coffee cup, is that comes in the midst of judgment. That comes in the midst of God uh, basically pouring out his wrath on his people through Babylon. This is from his people being exiled to a foreign land. And God there, under judgment, is encouraging them. And again, I understand, you know, limited space on coffee cups and, you know, whatever. But crying in coffee cups. What we see from Jeremiah chapter 1 is that he served during the reign of Josiah, Jehoiakim, till Zedekiah, until the captivity of Jerusalem. And his ministry, it's believed, went for about 40 years. His call that Jeff read in Jeremiah chapter 1 is crucial for what his life will be uh, and will become. And God encourages him in his calling in chapter 1 that Jeremiah is known, Jeremiah is set apart, Jeremiah is appointed. And he, and I believe we, are going to need this truth that is for every individual and for all of life. And it's not just simply this, that God says you're special, or you're a snowflake, or, or you're unique. That's not, it goes so much deeper, and it's so much better. 
God says you individually are known. You individually are set apart. You individually are appointed. And this tells us more about God than it does ourselves. Again, an extended quote from Eugene Peterson. Before Jeremiah knew God, God knew Jeremiah. This turns everything we ever thought about God around. We think that God is an object about which we have questions. We're curious about God. We make inquiries about God. We read books about God. We get into late night bowl sessions about God. We drop into church from time to time to see what is going on with God. We indulge in an occasional sunset or symphony to cultivate a feeling of reverence for God. But that is not the reality of our lives with God. Long before we ever got around to asking questions about God, God has been questioning us. Long before we got interested in the subject of God, God subjected us to the most intensive and searching knowledge. Before it ever crossed our minds that God might be important, God singled us out as important. Before we were formed in the womb, God knew us. We are known before we know This realization has a practical result. No longer do we run here and there, panicked and anxious, searching for answers to life. Our lives are not puzzles to be figured out. Rather, we come to God who knows us and reveals to us the truth of our lives. The fundamental mistake is to begin with ourselves and not God. God is the center from which all of life develops. If we use our ego as the center from which to plot the geometry of our lives, we will live eccentrically. We need to begin with God. And from that place, we then get a revelation of ourselves. And this is brilliant that God has all of this to speak to Jeremiah's understandable hesitations and fears. I wonder if Jeremiah was somewhat aware of what had happened to some of the other prophets. We don't necessarily get a deep dive into why he you know, says, God, I can't do this because I'm young and I can't talk. Uh, both of those things seem to be you know, having a little bit of wisdom and, and some oratory skill would be helpful if your job is talking to people and giving them accusation and calling them to repentance and, you know, giving the consequence of what happens if they don't. But God always, and here's what I came away with this week, God always couples his commitment with his command. God always couples his commitment to his people with the commands that he gives them. Now just stop and let that sink into your soul a little bit with what you're facing in life. Whatever fears, doubts, worries, whatever trouble and turmoil, whatever grief and pain, whatever sin and struggle, whatever temptation and addiction that you have, know this, God knew you before you knew anything. And with any command that God would give any one of his people, he couples it with his commitment and his help. That he knows us, he set us apart, he's appointed us for the time that we're in. We need to preach that to our fears. And God then anoints his mouth, gives him the call, and promises that his word is going to do the work in and out of Israel, reaching to the nations. That Jeremiah will, will build 
and plant. He'll destroy and overthrow. He'll pluck up and break down as God's word does the work among his people and the nations. And so this message that Jeremiah receives from God then goes out. And uh, again, to understand the outline of the book, which we're going to go through very quickly, I called again upon Union Church's uh, graphics department. Look at that. It's getting better. It's getting better, guys. And so we're going to do a quick run through of the book. Chapters 1 through 24 are this, accusation and warning. Jeremiah speaks of the savagery of sin. And, and this is, again, another aspect of the prophets is that he uses very graphic imagery to describe the reality of their sin. Chapter 3, verse 6 through 11 say this. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I have sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land committing adultery with stone and tree, meaning they were making idols. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Again and again and again, you get this very graphic and intense language that is used for the idolatry of God's people. That idolatry again and again and again is compared to adultery. Showing that the reality of sin in the individual and in God's people as a whole is never simply just a moral failure. It's never just a whoopsie daisy. But it has deep, profound consequences for ourselves and those around us. We have to see and realize, and again, this is what the prophets help us in, to see how devastating sin can be on a life and on a people. And most often, unfortunately, what you see throughout all of history up to today is that when sin and idolatry run rampant, the least of a society are those where the weight is most often felt. Jeremiah calls God's people to account with this multiple times throughout the book. And I just want to highlight one spot in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly, this is that call to repentance, execute justice with one with another. And here's what was happening. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Those that were most impacted by their sin were the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, those God, who God had called his people specifically to uplift, to uphold, to care for in the Torah again and again and again. They're pressing out further towards the margins. Injustice was flowing at every level of society, and it crushes people. Chris Wright explains, Jeremiah, like the other prophets, exposed the idolatry that underlay the spiritual, political, economic, and social disintegration of his society. 
The issue in the Bible is not just, do you believe in God or not? Everybody believed in gods of some sort. The question was, who is truly the only living God? And if that God is indeed Yahweh, the God of Israel, then there are consequences in real life, as shown in the Torah. Yahweh demanded justice for the poor, compassion and equality for foreigners and refugees, systemic redress for poverty, structural mechanisms to protect homelessness, and family... Uh, family lists from abuse and destitution, fair and equitable distribution of land, integrity in the judicial system, humility, simplicity, and morality in the government, as opposed to, he coins three W's, wealth, women, and weapons. But what we see again and again then, and what we see now, is when idolatry is a central part of people's lives, it leads to injustice and oppression. And God's people are called to be through their belief in God that results in a life lived in a society, work actively against that, flowing from the reality of who God is and how he's commanded his people to live. And so we get this accusation in 1 through 24, and so in 25, the instrument of justice is revealed. The whole chapter goes on uh, in depth of how Babylon is going to be used, and I'll just read a single verse from chapter 25, verse 11, where it says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Which is really bad news. Exile and captivity is coming. Some people will never see the promised land again. And then in the following 19 chapters, that is chapter 26 through 45, there's themes of judgment and exile, but then there's these uh, faint notes of hope. If, if you want the um, heartwarming, more devotional type reading, yeah, chapters 29 through 33, specifically 30 through 33, tells us that if God is still speaking in acting, there is a rock that his people can build on, even in exile. When things don't go according to their plan, when you are dealing with the consequence of sin, if God is still present and you are still alive, there's something to build on. And many of us in life will experience the devastation from our sin, and there's a sense of hopelessness, there's a sense of, of destitution that, again, one of the worst parts of pastoring is having a front row seat to the devastation of some people's lives due to sin. But I always am encouraged that if somebody is still living and breathing and God is still present, there is a firm, firm rock to build on. There is a promise of his presence. And again, his commitment goes with his command of how we can live moving forward. And one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture comes in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a promise and what a hope that God gives his people in the midst of their devastation. In the midst of their sin, in the midst of their idolatry, in the midst of their adultery, God says, here's who I am, and here's what I'm going to do. Here's who I am, here's my promise, here's my covenant, here's what's going to come. In chapters 46 through 51, Jeremiah then shifts his words for the nations, that God is not endorsing their evil, but is able to use their evil to accomplish his purpose and will one day judge them as well. And then in the final chapter, 52, there's the fulfillment of judgment as you get the story of God's people being overtaken by Babylon and led into exile. The people wouldn't listen, they wouldn't repent, they wouldn't believe the consequence, and sin, as it always does, leads to destruction and exile. It leads towards judgment and pain. But still, God leaves this silver lining that can be seen with keen eyes. In the final verses, chapter 52, verse 31 through 34, it says, In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Murdoch, king of Babylon, love that name, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Uh, They didn't usually do that in that day. It was kind of, your head is off. And he brought him out of prison. He spoke kindly to him. He gave him a seat above the seat of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lives. So what's the significance of that? It showed God was preserving someone in the line of David through which another king would come. It shows us that at the end of Jeremiah, the God's mission is not done, though his people are in exile. And that had to shape and sustain Jeremiah, that God was not done is he saw the heartbreak, as he saw the evil and its effects wreaking havoc on people's lives, he had to be sustained, as we need to be sustained by the fact that God is not done. Do you see this God who speaks all throughout this book and in this time and in this place that he's working? Not, not the God of our imaginations, but the God of Scripture. When odds seem insurmountable, when his people seem uh, impossible to reach, that God isn't done. He's not the God like our own imaginations that considers the odds and probabilities and is like, you know, that project's really not worth it. Not going to get a huge return on investment on that one, so I'm just going to move along to the next one. That's not the God of the Bible. He's not constrained by time and space. He's not withheld by probabilities. He doesn't think like us. And I, and maybe perhaps you today, need a fresh vision of that God who has been faithful through every single generation to today. Maybe you, like me, need a little bit of a new and renewed glimpse of this God who sits on his throne, unshaken 
by what's happening in history and is still intimately involved in all of the details of it. Maybe you, like me, need to be a little bit shaken up from the constant scroll, the constant feed, the constant consuming of everything that leads us down, that leads us depressed, that leads us in a place that seems like, what's the point of it all? And we need to get a fresh glimpse of God on the throne. Again, Eugene Peterson says, if we forget that the newspapers are footnotes to scripture and not the other way around, you'll finally be afraid to get out of bed in the morning. Too many of us spend far too much time with the editorial page. She's writing this in the 80s, okay? Um, And not nearly enough time with the prophetic vision. We get our interpretation of politics and economics and morals from journalists when we should be getting only information. The meaning of the world is most accurately given to us by God's word. So today we need to remember a few things. First, sin and idolatry is still adultery. And before we go railing on the world, we need to look in the mirror and have the old Puritan quote by John Owen ringing in our ears, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Friends, take an evaluation of your life and your heart and go, what idols that I possess or cherish or Uh, give too much time and space to what idols need to be eradicated. Do an inventory. If I keep living the way that I'm living today, if I keep spending my money the way I am, if I keep giving my attention in the avenues that I am, where does that lead me in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? We have to not think with that kind of consequence. If my browsing history stays the same, if I continue consuming the same types of substances, like where does my life lead if I continue on this trajectory? What idols are we keeping safe that we need to be smashing? Kill sin or sin will be killing you. And it always has trickle-down effects to those around us. Always. Second thing, is that our anger, our sadness, our view of the world as it is today actually has a good outlet. Again, we see Jeremiah with all this emotional spectrum going on in these 52 chapters, and he had an outlet for every single one of them, and that was God. Through lament, through longing, through loving people, Jeremiah had an outlet. And I need to be reminded this week that the enemy in this world is Satan, sin, and death. And people in this world are wrapped up in that. But the people themselves aren't necessarily the enemy. We aren't called to be culture warriors against those people, whoever it may be for you. There's forces at work of evil in this world. And the outlet for our anger is not towards those people but to lament, to long, and to love. To be a people that first look in the mirror, destroy our own idols before speaking the truth to others and pointing people to the living God. And how do we go about those things? Well, in this way, we see more than Jeremiah. And this is the gift of reading through the Old Testament, is that we see so much more than Jeremiah saw. 
Jeremiah was looking for one who would bring a new covenant, and we look back and see Jesus, the new man who came, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld and get to behold his glory. Jesus, the Son of God, where the creator enters into creation and takes up residence with humanity. We see that the new man came, and he also, like Jeremiah, brought a message, and that message was similar. It was, in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Repent and turn from your sin and receive this grace and this goodness and this life and this hope and this rest in me. And we see a mission that Jesus came, that he lived, that he paid for sin on the cross, that he conquers Satan's sin and death through the resurrection. And in John chapter 20, he breathes on his disciples and says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that calling, he promises his commitment by the Holy Spirit who dwells with us, leading us, guiding us, directing us, comforting us in all things. It's when we see the entirety of the story that we can gain courage for what life has for us. Another coffee cup verse is found in Romans chapter 8. It's not going to be on the screen. It's this. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, right? And so we can kind of throw that out like... It can become a little bit cliche. It can become a little bit easy. You know, somebody's going through something difficult, and rather than actually being with them and lamenting, we just go, well, all things are going to work for together for good. It's, it's one of those promises that is so deep, profound, and true, and we a little bit trivialize it by just going, well, it's all going to work out in the end. And it will. But we need the whole story. How do we know that all things are going to work for, together for good? Well, just bear with me while I preach Paul's words to you. The only way that happens is this. For those whom he foreknew, again, before we knew God, he knew us. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that the firstborn, they, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Than this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. And more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? <laughs> Everything that the prophets faced. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Friends, let us 
day by day, be reminded and catch a vision of this God and his profound love for the world that we see in Jesus that is then applied to our lives and situations. I don't promise you that that makes anything easy, simple, or free of difficulty. In fact, a lot of the opposite is promised. But what I can tell you is that whatever you are facing in life and will face as time unfolds is that God's commitment to you will be coupled with his command for you to follow him. And that if and when you ever question his love, if or when you ever question his commitment, if or when you ever question his goodness, all we need to do is look to Jesus with one another and see the profound truth that he is for his people, that he loves his people, and he is using this small, feeble church to be a display for Prescott and all of the nations that God is God, and God is good, and God is at work. Though everything in the world seems to say otherwise, remember this, he's on the throne, he's with us, and he's for us. Let's pray. So God, I pray that this morning as we respond now that we would continue to encounter the reality of your presence. That you would, by your spirit, move away anything and everything that is clouding our vision today. That you would cleanse us and renew us. God, with David, we would pray that you would Restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would cleanse us again, renew us. That you would correct our vision to a more accurate one of who you are and what you're doing now. That we would see you, Jesus, who came. You, Jesus, who preached the good news of the gospel to repent and believe. And we would follow in your footsteps, in your mission today. And that you would use this church union to show the world what your love, what your covenant, what your commitment looks like. We need you for all these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.